Access to data enables rare disease stakeholders to do more and accelerate results. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is becoming as savvy about clinical data as clinicians and researchers. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to be empowered data owners and stewards. Attend the Data DIY workshops and view resources at globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. For rare disease patient groups seeking to drive research toward the development of therapies, many obstacles exist. By setting an overarching research agenda, driving collaborations among researchers, and sharing what's learned, patient groups are getting the most out of limited budgets and accelerating the time it takes to develop new treatments. The newly announced Rare is One project from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative seeks to help rare disease patient organizations apply the collaborative research model and improve on it. We spoke to Tanya Simoncelli, Science Policy Director of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, about the program, how it works, and what the organization hopes the long-term effects of its efforts will be. Tanya, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Rare is One, a, a new program from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative that's designed to accelerate progress against rare diseases. The collaborative research model you're hoping to drive among rare disease patient groups and the case for such an approach. Perhaps, though, we can begin with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. For people not familiar with the organization, what is it? What is it working to do? And broadly speaking, what's the approach it takes? Sure. So the, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is a philanthropic organization that was founded by Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan um, back in 2015 following the birth of their first child with the mission to make the world better for her generation. And the, the organization basically is, works across three core pillars right now. Uh, one is in education, um, and that pillar is focused on promoting and scaling a whole child approach to education to help ensure that children have the knowledge and skills to re realize their full potential. Um, the second is focused on science, um, and the science division here has a mission to make it possible to cure, prevent, or manage all diseases by the end of the century, so very bold uh, mission. And then the third is focused on justice and opportunity, and that pillar is working to build a future that's more just and inclusive and full of opportunity for everyone, and they're focused right now on criminal justice reform and immigration and affordable housing as, as sort of their initial efforts. So um, in terms of approach, this is sort of what draws commonality across those three pillars. 
So the way that CZI works is we, um, unlike a more traditional philanthropic organization, we work to pair grant making. Um, grant making is really just one of our tools, but we work to pair grant making with policy and advocacy, engineering, and impact investing to accelerate the pace of social progress. So, um, and in doing that, we're working uh, not so much on smaller term sort of uh, projects, but we really work to address systemic problems through long-term strategies that have multi-decade timescales. Um, so it's a very exciting place to work where you can really um, think about, uh, you know, long-term issues, uh, really big thorny issues <laughs> that um, uh, that are really hard to address um, in, you know, most other places. What is the Rare as One initiative and what's it hoping to achieve? Yeah, so the Rare as One initiative is our uh, new program. Um that we launched on June 11th, um, that the goal of the program is to enable and scale a model for rare disease research in which patients are the drivers. So there's some background on this. The initiative really grew out of an exploration that I initiated when I came to CZI um, a little bit less than two years ago. And I felt strongly that if we were going to achieve our mission in the science division, of curing, preventing, and managing all disease, um, that we really needed to recognize patients as the central um, partners uh, to our efforts. That patients really, you know, at the end of the day, research aims to serve, uh, you know, the ultimate beneficiaries of research um, are patients, and patients also have um, extraordinary insights into their own diseases um, and really need to be placed and viewed at the center of our entire, of the entire healthcare ecosystem, um, including in research. So we, ex we initiated an exploration um, to try to answer this question of how CDI could best leverage and support the power of patients to accelerate research. And we spent the last 18 months meeting with, oh, I would say um, several dozen patient organizations, disease foundations. Um, we also talked with some technology um, companies and startups, um, met with a lot of individual researchers and clinicians and others that work closely with patient communities. And what we learned was that patients are not just critical participants in research or partners in research, but they're actually increasingly going beyond that and actually becoming active drivers of research. And by that, I mean they're forming strong patient communities, um, they're developing active collaborations with researchers and clinicians, they're fundraising for research and directing funds to research priorities, and they're building sophisticated disease registries and biobanks um, and working directly with industry and working to attract industry's interest in their disease. And this approach is, um, is, 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 it can happen for any disease area, but it's probably most critical um, in the rare disease space. And that's because um, uh, in rare diseases, um, as this community well knows, um, there's the traditional academic research model doesn't um, serve those diseases particularly well. Um, there are a lot of incentive issues in terms of um, studying those diseases because of the small patient populations being seen at any given institution, 
And patient communities more and more are realizing, especially in the rare disease space, that they really need to create the research-enabling infrastructure to attract researchers to their disease and to actually drive research forward. And so this, this approach can be enormously powerful in that space. Um, but there are also significant challenges for patients who are seeking to do this. Um, and what we learned about what's, you know, the, the best way to sort of um, sort of articulate those challenges is that they really come down to infrastructure. So whether patients are trying to, um, you know, get up to speed on the state of the science for their disease, figure out which researchers are active in their um, disease area, whether they're trying to build a registry, there's really not a playbook, um, but more importantly, there's not a set of tools to turn to, and they spend an enormous amount of time sort of reinventing the wheel and, and doing a lot of research and trying to figure out sort of how to go about doing this at, you know, whichever step that they're trying to take. So with this project, um, we've decided that one of the things, what we really want to do with the Rares One project is we want to, over time, um, and this is not something we're building, we're doing right now, but, but in the long term, we want to help lower the barriers to patient-driven research by helping to create that infrastructure. So we're imagining this as a virtual incubator that would provide a combination of tools and various grants programs and training and other support and capacity building services to help patient communities, um, uh, you know, drive progress against their disease. And to start, we started off with a um, fairly modest uh grant opportunity, a funding opportunity where we're aiming to fund up to 10 patient organizations to join what we're calling the Rare as One Network. And what we'll do is we will um, provide these organizations with support in the form of funding and training and mentorship and some capacity building services to build a patient-driven research network. Um, and we'll those groups will work to identify and engage researchers and clinicians in their disease area and host an international meeting to help align their community around the state of the science and research priorities for their disease. And we're kind of building this out as an initial kind of learning network of networks. So it'll be like an initial cohort that um, we can kind of test and iterate the tools that we provide and the, the training, and that will also be really important for thinking about how we build out the, this incubator sort of to help serve other um, needs of the rare disease community. We should note that this isn't CZI's first foray into rare disease. Uh, CZI has supported Global Gene's data DIY project. You've also supported the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, which was part of the genesis for Rare is One. Listeners may be familiar with David Fagenbaum, who's been a guest on this podcast previously. Can you talk a little about David's experience and how it gave rise to the collaborative network model? Yeah, so I first met David um, a little bit uh, just before coming to CZI, actually, just a few months before I came here at a Faster Cures conference in Washington, D.C., and I had actually heard about his story, but I had never um, heard him give a talk, and what really struck me about his story is that what David realized is that the most important thing he could do to drive progress against his disease was to actually organize a broader community and mobilize that community to work together. Um, and to remind your listeners, his, 
basic story is that he was diagnosed um, with idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, a rare disease that um, sent his immune system into kind of hyperdrive, um, causing his organs to shut down. And he had a series of relapses with this disease um, over the next few years. He was first diagnosed in 2010 um, and nearly died multiple times from those relapses. Um, David, you know, was a medical student at the time, and so that was a helped him that so in between his relapses, he spent a lot of time, you know, scouring the literature and doing everything he could to understand the disease. And he was really dismayed to find that while the disease had been identified back in the 1950s, very little progress had been made. And the researchers that were working on this disease were really doing so in isolation. They weren't, they just weren't working together. And so he set out to email every single researcher on every single paper that had ever been written and brought them together and asked them to join a discussion board. And this was enormously important. Um, he went on to organize the first international conference on Castleman disease. Um, but these early discussions across the community led to the emergence of a new model for understanding the disease that was really essential for directing research for the field and ultimately establishing a research agenda for the disease, for the field, that also really was important for actually um, arguably saving David's life. Um, he's been in remission now for several years um, because he ended up um, convincing his doctor to prescribe him a drug that had never been prescribed for Kaplan disease based on some of this knowledge of the community that was emerging that really we shouldn't be treating this disease like a cancer. It was much more of a disease of a hyperactivated immune system. And so he, he convinced his doctor to prescribe him a, um, immunosuppressant. Um, and he's been in remission ever since. So it's, it's an incredible story. Um, you know, and David, David has published about this. He's published an article that describes this model and has suggested in the article and has actually been mentoring many, many groups about how he did this, and he really wants to help other groups leverage this model. So what we've been doing with David is we've been, um, we started a collaboration with his organization to work together to try to understand what tools are other groups using to do this, groups that are trying to establish networks, what is working, what are the challenges, um, what other tools are out there. So we're sort of trying to understand what, you know, what tools could be used um, to do this, where do they need to be optimized, where could they be integrated, how can we make this easier for groups to do this? Um, and um, so it's a really wonderful partnership. What is the collaborative network model? How, how does it work? So um, the interest here is in a specific type of collaborative network model, right? So our interests are, are in a patient-driven research network. And the way that works is Patients are at the center of the network. They're driving the formation of the network. They're reaching out to the relevant researchers and clinicians in their disease area and bringing them together. And that's really important, we think, especially for rare diseases, because no one's more motivated than the patients and their loved ones to drive progress against the disease. And having them at the table, um, you know, they, they are very important uh, motivating uh, force uh, for the, the research community. Um, from a nuts and bolts standpoint, what it means is um, that they need tools, right? And they need tools that will support outreach and network building and that will help 
create and sustain this network. They need sort of stakeholder engagement type and information exchange type tools that will help um, help keep this community um, together, um, engaging the community over time. Um, and they need to um, and they need help in developing sort of an understanding of the state of the science field, which is something that um, you know David really had as an advantage being in medical school. He had a he could read the literature and he had access to the literature, et cetera. Um, so the idea and they need sufficient you know capacity, but also resources um, and leadership to to lead these sorts of efforts. Um, so our our idea is to sort of launch this program and, and test its feasibility and scalability and generalizability for the community through this through an initial cohort of eight to ten grantees. Well, what's been the experience of the Casman Disease Collaborative Network, and what's the case for broadening the approach? So I think um, the experience has been. I mean, the lessons from this approach. Um, there are a few really important lessons. So first was that is that collaboration really is the key here. Um, so David realized um, that what was most needed was to bring the community together. Um, so to bring the community together and to try to create a unified research agenda for the disease, right? That this is really essential to direct when you have very scarce resources You've got to make sure that you're funding the right study at the right time for the field as a whole. And so I think that's one, one important lesson, that that is really critical for making sure that you can make very efficient progress um, when you have limited resources. Um, so I think also um, the experience has been that by bringing the community together, by getting alignment on the state of the science, and identifying, you know, research gaps and priorities, you can make a lot of progress in a relatively short amount of time. So with Castleman disease, um, we went from knowing very little about the disease um, to having, you know, a new model for the disease, a number of important insights into possible disease mechanisms, um, published diagnostic criteria that are now, now being used all over the world, which is, of course, helping to identify other patients that can be can participate in the network and um, join the network, um, and having one approved drug and another in clinical trials all in six years, and that's that's very fast for a disease that for you know more than fifty years, um, very little was um, progress was was being made, um, and then you know every rare disease is different obviously, and so um, I think. One of the things we're trying to understand is how scalable, how generalizable is this approach. Um, but I think there are good reasons to think that this approach will work in other diseases. Um, first of all, um, it's been used before. I mean, David himself modeled his work and really credits Josh Summer, um, who runs the Cordoma Foundation, for inspiring him with what he did in Kaplan disease. And Josh Summer had a, you know, extraordinary success with Cordoma Foundation. Um, and driving progress against that disease in an incredibly short amount of time. In just 10 years, we went from having, you know, no drugs um, in the pipeline whatsoever and no disease models and no mouse models to having an incredibly robust ecosystem and, and set of research tools that have been developed by a patient-led organization and have led to now, I think, um, somewhere upwards of about of 
seven to ten drugs now in clinical trials or at least in the pipeline. Um, so we've seen it work elsewhere. Um, but also I think what's interesting about this approach is it recognizes that, um, you know, science, the science is a challenge, certainly, um, and it's going to be more challenging with some diseases than other diseases. Um, but there's a social problem that, that can and needs to be addressed. And if you address the social problems, sometimes the science can come more rapidly. And um, if we can find ways to encourage collaboration across the community, that can be enormously, um, enormously powerful. You've said that the ultimate goal of the Rare is One program is not to fund 10 rare disease groups. It's to test and improve on this approach to create and sustain a patient-led research network. Beyond funding, what is the organization to doing to, to support these groups? Yeah, so what what we mean in saying that is that the this is really just the very beginning of our work in this area. So our intent of funding these ten groups to start is to create an initial learning cohort that can test and iterate on this patient led research approach and the tools and training that we're going to provide to these groups. Um, so the hope is that by learning with this initial cohort, we can then understand whether and how we might be able to scale that approach. So we might have future cohorts. We might um, we might decide to work on other areas. Um, but beyond funding, we're also planning to provide the groups with tools and training and other capacity building support and resources to help them build and sustain those networks. Um, these are all still under development. Um, and then ultimately... What we'll do is make all of those training programs and uh, tools and resources publicly available so that other patient groups can use them whether they're, whether or not they're in our incubator. Um, and then we're also starting to look at other areas. So we're looking at things like patient-led registries and patient-led um, biobanks and, and whether there might be um, opportunities there for us to contribute. And how will you take what you learn from the organizations you engage with and both make improvements to this model and, and share what insight you gain? Um, so there are a few things that we're looking to do. Um, first, we're looking, we're really building this program, this initial program. We're building in space from the get-go for the groups to learn from one another. So we really want to build this out as a learning network. Um so groups will be invited to um, participate in regular webinars so they can we'll, we'll feature one of the different groups so we, they can learn with each other as they go and as they try to build their networks. What are the challenges? What, are the, what things are going well, et cetera? Um, then the initial cohort, um, you know, if we decide to expand this and fund future cohorts, we're imagining this initial cohort will, could serve as mentors for follow-on cohorts. So... We want to sort of build this out with a pay-it-forward type um, approach. Um, and then, you know, as we've been doing for the last 18 months, we're going to continue to do a lot of outreach to the community and to seek their input on, um, you know, our broader incubator program. Um, and, you know, we believe the expertise here really lies in the community. It doesn't it, it doesn't lie here at CZI. So we are constantly looking to the community for ideas for how to sort of build out the program um, and how we will, you know, be able to continue to um, 
you know, to improve it and to iterate on what we're, we're already developing. You're accepting proposals from rare disease organizations for a, a two-year grant under the program. Who's eligible and what do organizations have to do to apply? Yeah, so to apply, um, you have to represent a patient-led 501c3 organization um, focused on a rare disease or a syndrome or a group of rare diseases. Um, you need to be interested in building and sustaining a patient-led research network um, and be willing to, um, you know, share feedback with the community and learn from other networks. Um, as part of the application, we're asking um, the applicants to have assembled a team of at least one researcher and one clinician who have agreed to work with your organization to form a research network. Um, and uh, so those are those are the basic requirements. We've tried to create a very straightforward application process, and uh, you can learn more at rareisone.org. And the deadline for applications? The deadline is 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific time on Tuesday, July 23rd. And could you just repeat the URL one more time? Sure. It's uh, rareisone.org. Tanya Simoncelli. Director of Policy for Science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Tanya, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.